You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. So this is part two of our episode on the evidence-based do's and don'ts for living in the time of COVID-19. And in this past episode, um, we covered COVID transmission 101. We talked a little bit about masks, um, physical distancing, hand washing, groceries, testing. Basically, we were focused on uh, prevention and hygiene. Andrea, do you want to do just a maybe a a high level recap? Sure, absolutely. Um, so as far as COVID transmission, the primary mode of transmission is short range droplets. Um, that's person to person transmission through respiratory droplets. So the virus is contained inside respiratory droplets that are composed of mucus and salivary secretions. The secondary mode of transmission would be aerosolized droplets. So these are going to be slightly smaller respiratory droplets that actually are able to hang out in the air um, after a person has left the the proximity. Um, And this is going to be particularly true in poorly ventilated spaces. Um, And then the third possibility for transmission is fomite transmission, which would be picking up the virus from a contaminated surface. These are typically inanimate objects. Um, The data now suggests that that's probably lower probability than than your droplet and your aerosolized uh, droplet transmission. Andrea, I have to jump in and tell you, I don't, your accent is off the charts right now. Do people ever tell you that you have an accent? (laughs) No, it's probably a combination of Connecticut, Long Island, New York City, and now Philly. So I'm a a blend now. There's something there. I don't know. I used to have a really thick Brooklyn accent. It comes out a little bit sometimes, but anyway, sorry. (laughs) On to masks. Um, (laughs) I'll just say super high level, and then you could, if you want to get into a little bit more detail. We were talking about the different types of masks, um, N95, KN95, <clears throat> excuse me, those are the masks that typically our frontline workers, our uh, clinicians wear. Um, if you can't get your hands on those, you know, those are the, the gold standard uh, right now. Um, surgical masks are great. Um, alternatively, cloth masks are really good, especially the ones with more than one layer, and even better, the ones where you can um, put a filter in uh, for additional efficacy. And Andrew did a really nice job talking about the different sizes, the pore sizes and the size of the virus particles. Did you want to sum that up really briefly? Sure, absolutely. So the the pore sizes obviously are smallest in an N95, um, next smallest in a surgical mask, and then um, comparable in, in cloth weaves that have higher thread count. So higher thread count means it's a tighter weave, it's a more dense fabric. Um, and then as you add increased layers. Now, you know, we want to dispel the misconception that just because the virus itself is 0.125 microns um, or 125 nanometers, um, even though that's technically smaller than the pores in a surgical mask or cloth mask, there's no naked virus. It's enclosed, it's it's contained within a respiratory droplet, which are very often closer to one micron or greater in size. So masks are quite effective at trapping and blocking these particles because they are larger droplets than just a, a bare virus floating around that that's not happening. Um, 
the masks are able to block the virus through both mechanical um, disruption. So they're physically blocking the transmission of that, as well as electrostatic interactions, meaning that some of these particles are going to kind of be um, attracted to each other. And that's going to promote trapping of those smaller particles. Sorry, I was just going to say one thing that we didn't mention that we did get a ton of questions about. What about the masks with valves? No, no, no. (laughs) Yes. Exhalation valves are um, valves that allow whatever you're exhaling to get out of your mask. AKA Um, defeating the purpose of wearing a mask. (laughs) Exactly. So any mask with an exhalation valve is not going to protect people around you. Um, So you want to steer clear of those. Then we were talking a little bit about uh, physical distancing. I I like that we're saying physical instead of social distancing. Andrew, you made a great point that you could still be social, just do so from a distance. Um, Of course, that's that's really important. Um, Andrea talked a little bit about some evidence of airborne transmission. So really, it's important that we wear masks and also physically distance. These need to be coupled together. Um, We talked about hand washing, good... uh, even without COVID, in a world without COVID, we should all be practicing good hygiene. Remember to to scrape and get the soap underneath your fingernails. Get your thumbs. Don't worry about um, which type of soap you're you're using. Any soap will do. Bar soap, liquid soap um, does not need to be antibacterial. We're not even dealing with bacteria right now. We're dealing with a virus. Um, and then of course, if you do uh, substitute sanitizer, because you're not, you don't have access to soap and water, it has to be at least 60% alcohol. So a lot of the homemade sanitizers are not going to be sufficient. Then we talked a little bit about groceries. I said how I used to wear a hazmat suit when I was uh, unpacking groceries and would wipe everything down. Um, we don't do that anymore. We've learned uh, again that um, fomite transmission is is rare. It's really hard to get the virus um, by touching surfaces that have been touched by people who who are infected. Um, so probably not super necessary to wipe down all of your groceries, but always a good idea to frequently, uh, you know, wash your hands frequently before and after. Uh, unpacking your groceries. Yeah. And then the very last thing we talked about was uh, when to get tested after a presumed exposure. So the diagnostic tests, which are your PCR and your antigen tests, those are either going to be your nasopharyngeal swabs or your saliva collection tests. Those are going to be the optimal time to get tested is five days after a presumed exposure or if you're actively symptomatic. Um, The antibody test, again, is not used for diagnostic. That's a blood sample-based test. And that's looking to see if your B cells produced antibodies in response to the infection. Um, Right now, we cannot say for certainty that that means you have immunity. Um, So you can't really use an antibody test to make an assumption about protection. Um, It's really just for uh, curiosity purposes at this point. So let's dive in. We have a lot more ground to cover. Um, Just uh, an outline of what we hope to cover in this second part of the episode. We're going to talk a bit more about general indoor and outdoor risk considerations. We'll talk about restaurants uh, versus ordering in uh, and and the risk of eating at restaurants, indoor and outdoor. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about schools. So we'll talk about young children, uh, teenage children, and then young adults. Um, And finally, are we talking about anything else, Andrew? What yep. am I? We're going to talk oh, about 
Yep. Travel <laughs> um, considerations. If you are traveling, whether that's for, you know, work or necessity purposes or for vacation. And then of course, um, you know, how to interact with family members, especially older family members that may be higher risk. So this, this section is really focused on behaviors that are associated with living safely in the time of COVID-19. So let's let's jump into it. Andrea, do you want to get us started uh, just talking a little bit about indoor-outdoor risk considerations? Yeah, absolutely, Jess. So um, generally speaking, if all things are the same, outdoor is obviously lower risk than indoor because you have more air, you have better circulation, you have more space to spread out. However, things I think that people often forget is that there are cumulative risks, right? So things that increase your risk are going to be additive to the point where something that was initially very low risk, like running outside with one other person, become very high risk um, where it's something like running outside with a very large group of people where we have no distance. So risks are going to increase with the number of parameters. And the key parameters here are number of persons outside of your immediate household, um, duration of exposure, and then, of course, proximity. And then, of course, whether or not you're actually wearing a mask. So as we talked about in the last episode, masks are the number one best preventative um, for limiting the spread of this virus in the absence of effective treatment and vaccine, which is where we currently are. Um, so as these parameters increase, so as number of persons increases, as your duration of exposure increases, and as your proximity to those persons increase, that can transition a low-risk activity to a high-risk activity. So even just because you're outdoors, if you're with 50 other people or 60 other people or however many other people, that can actually transition something that would be you know, characterized as low risk to something that's very high risk. And this is particularly important as we're talking about behaviors that are now changing as things are reopening, um, particularly with regard to these topics we're going to cover, such as restaurants, which not only are indoors, but also require you to remove your mask. Yes. And as I mentioned in the first part of the episode, I where I live in Florida, we've just entered phase three of reopening. So that means that everything is, is back to normal capacity, indoors, outdoors, and there's no longer any um, fines or, or repercussions for not wearing masks. So let's, let's start talking a little bit about restaurants, um, eating inside, eating outside, and all that good stuff. So I just want to cite um, a CDC case control study that came out earlier uh, in September, September 11th, that found that people who tested positive for COVID-19 were twice as likely to have reported dining out in the 14 days before their diagnosis than those who tested negative. Real quick, I don't want to take us down a, a you know a, a total non sequitur here, but um, I'd like in future episodes to talk a little bit about study design. So just very briefly, I wanted to clarify what I mean by case control study. So this is an observational study. It compares patients who have a disease, uh, they're the cases, with patients who do not have the disease or the outcome, they're the controls. And we look back retrospectively to compare how frequently the exposure to a risk factor is present in each group to determine the 
relationship between the risk factor, in this case, eating at restaurants, and the outcome of interest, which is developing COVID. I want to just point out that these observational studies have flaws, which I'll go into a lot more detail in a future um, episode. Um, They're not as well controlled as experimental studies, but they do still um, offer some important insights. So I wanted to mention that study. Um, There was also a field study conducted in China um, where at lunch there were five members of a family. They appear totally healthy. And and this was actually, when was this, Andrew? I don't know. I think it was, um, I think it was in January in, as I said, it was in China. Um, So again, family of people, five people, all healthy. Later in the day, one of them, a 63-year-old woman, started experiencing a fever and a cough, and she ended up going to the hospital where she tested positive for COVID. Within two weeks, nine others who ate lunch on that floor of the restaurant also tested positive. Four were relatives of the first infected woman who were sitting at the table with her. Um, But then for the other five, the restaurant appears to have been the source of the virus. Um, And this was all because of the droplet transmission that we know that that's how this virus is primarily transmitted, um, prompted by air conditioner uh, ventilation. So the key factor in this particular case study was the direction of airflow. Um, Andrea, did you want to jump in and say anything? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the the big risk factors with with dining in in an indoor restaurant are, of course, the ventilation and in this instance, the turbulent airflow from the air conditioner itself that promoted the spread of those respiratory droplets beyond the immediate proximity of the table. Um, so if you look at the map of the restaurant, the persons that were infected were all in a lateral flow from the air conditioner, but persons on the other half of the restaurant, um, none of them became infected. So first considerations are, of course, um, you know, indoor, you have um, poorly ventilated or recirculated air that can promote uh, infection. And of course, the fact in a restaurant in particular, in order to eat, you're taking your mask off. So you're removing the number one protective um, you know, feature of the control of this viral spread right now. And so all in all, restaurants should be considered a uh, very high risk. And that's restaurants, mm-hmm. bars, anywhere where you're taking off your mask in an indoor space. Um, I know that there are gyms actually by me who, even though we do have a mask mandate, they allow people to take their masks off. Um, and that's going to carry the same sort of risk factor as dining in a restaurant. So pretty much anything indoors in a poorly ventilated space, space um, where you have, you know, persons that you don't live with uh, and you're taking your mask off. So for the first few months of the pandemic, I wouldn't even order in. I just, you know, stocked up on grains and on food and and we were cooking every night. I was exhausted. (laughs) Um, And then once we started learning that really, I'm sorry, I keep saying this, but you know, that the primary mode of transmission is droplet person to person, um, I sort of relaxed that a little bit. And I have been ordering in, I feel comfortable ordering in. I think you mentioned briefly in the last episode, Andrew, that we haven't seen any evidence of foodborne transmission of of the disease. Yeah, that's Um, correct. 
So do you feel comfortable ordering in? Or? Yeah. So, so we, we do order in, um, we'll get takeout, you know, at least once a week. And, um, I'm, I've been very fortunate that a lot of the places by us are being very cautious, um, you know, as far as the takeout and, and delivery and things like that. Um, we, we kind of mix up, uh, between, you know, going to the grocery store and getting groceries delivered. I actually still get groceries delivered, um, mostly for convenience at, at this point, but, um, I will not dine in in a restaurant. Um, I'll mm-hmm. get takeout, but um, I won't dine in. And I still really haven't brought myself to to eat outside at a restaurant either. Um, and we, we're, we're mm-hmm. creeping up on the the kind of cold weather season here in Philly. Um, so obviously, I don't foresee that changing anytime soon. Um, so I'll probably continue with takeout, but but won't be dining in anywhere. And we've talked about this, Andrea, you know, this trade off between like, you know, mental health and and risk thresholds. And I typically am a very risk averse person. Um, And, you know, as I said, in the very beginning of this pandemic, you know, I was in a hazmat suit, I didn't leave the house, I, I really was in a true lockdown, I would cook all my meals and everything like that. Um, I have admittedly, I have gone out to eat only sitting outdoors, I I won't sit indoors in a restaurant, I'm very uncomfortable about that. Um, But I will only eat out outdoors with people who are in my own little pod, the people in my own household. Um, And I said this in the last episode of Pet Peeve of mine is people who they think, you know, you're meeting up with friends who don't live in your household. And yes, you're sitting outside. But if you're sitting outside, it doesn't mean that that droplet transmission just goes away, right? Because if you're still sitting in close proximity with people, not wearing a mask, as you said, if you're eating and drinking, um, there's still risk there. So I just wanted to make note of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, as I kind of reiterated here, but, you know, as you add those additional risk factors, so number of persons, proximity and duration of exposure, it's going to transition that, that activity that's normally less risky to, to higher risk. Um, And I think that that that's important when, you know, people consider these behaviors that they're, they're, they're willing to risk for versus not willing to risk for, because of course, there are going to be some people that are taking on higher risk, um, because, you know, they have to for work or because, you know, they need to for their mental health or because they choose to. Um, and it's not an all or nothing. So if you do one activity, that's very risky, then you have to be more stringent in another activity. So if you go and meet up with friends and you have an outdoor gathering, then you you have to now be more cautious in another activity. So, you know, as, as things reopen, it's not, okay, everything's open. I'm going to go get my hair done. I'm going to go to a restaurant. I'm going to go, you know, to the store. I'm going to go, you know, to the casino, you know, you can't do it all. You have to kind of pick and choose which things are most critical and which risks you're willing to accept, uh, and then kind of dial it back on the other ones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Let's talk about schools. <laughs> this is something that uh, I know has been driving me crazy as a parent. I know so many people are in the same boat here. Um, I have just aired all out here. I, I have two young kids. They're toddlers. They're They were supposed to be in preschool. I've opted not to send them to preschool just yet. Um, And let's just let's talk a little bit about the risk uh, among young children. I know, Andrea, you you wanted to talk. There were some recent uh, studies that you're going to cite here. Um, But I just wanted to call everyone's attention to there's a new national effort being led by Dr. Emily Oster. She's an economist at Brown University. So she's created this dashboard dashboard. Dashboard. Why did I say that word so so weirdly? <laughs> um, NPR just published an article on it. If you want to pull it up, but basically they ask K through twelve schools to voluntarily and anonymously report their confirmed and suspected coronavirus cases, along with the safety strategies and uh, mitigation strategies that they're employing. So I pulled it up, and as of September twenty second, it showed us that an average of two hundred thirty cases per. 100,000 students and 490 cases per 100,000 staff members um, in the first two weeks of September. Uh, The responses come from public, private, and charter schools in 47 states, serving roughly 200,000 students both in, uh, excuse me, in person and online. Wow, why am I forgetting how to speak right now? I'm all about this dashboard. Again, I'm a data junkie. Uh, The dashboard highlights not just raw case numbers, also infection rates, um, cases as a percentage of total in-person attendance for students and staff members, and it provides some of the broader context. So how are schools opening? What kinds of hybrid policies do schools have? What kind of mitigation factors are they undertaking? Um, I do just want to point out one little disclaimer here. Uh, Cases are not necessarily confirmed by testing. Uh, we, I'm sure we all know that self-reporting is not ideal, but it's th- the best that we have right now at this point. Um, schools that are implementing stringent mitigation efforts, they might have more resources to devote to testing, which might turn up more cases, which in turn make them look worse in the database. So this just would be a type of re- reporting bias that I wanted to disclose here. Um, before I go on and talk about some, some case studies from Australia and Ireland, did you want to jump in with anything here, Andrea? Yeah. So I think, you know, the the big considerations about schools, you know, and we're going to get more into kind of the the infection process or the risk factors with children versus adults, um, because, of course, we've heard a lot of chatter about, you know, well, kids are, are not affected as much by this. So why not we just, you know, open up? Um, but things to consider, of course, it's still in an indoor space. Um, you're you're asking, you know, children to be compliant with these, um, you know, safety precautions like masking and things like that. So these are all considerations to think about um, as schools start to reopen. Um, of course, mental health of children is, is a big factor, but I think people also need to understand that school as it reopens or if it reopens is not going to be the same. Kids are not going to be sharing their lunches with each other. They're not going to be sitting closely with each other. Um, I've seen, you know, some of my friends who have kids, their, their school's plans, you know, have desks spaced out six feet apart in a gym, you know, to promote this physical distancing. So, you know, yes, you know, they'll be able to talk to their friends, but they're, it's not going to be nearly the same. Um, And I think, you know, everybody has to kind of be prepared for that as well. 
You know, I'm so happy that you mentioned that because I'm, I'm worried that I sort of uh, approach this a little too nonchalantly. You know, my kids are very young. Um, if I had older kids, especially, I would be I would be very concerned about, you know, they're not meeting developmental, whatever it is. You know, you're missing out on things. You're missing out on that education in person. And I can't even imagine, you know, virtual world. It's a whole new world for us. Um, I get it. There certainly are trade-offs. Um, for me, though, and uh, again, you you know, I have a very unique situation. I am able to have, I work full time. My husband works full time. I do have a nanny. I'm very fortunate to have that situation. I know that others are not in that situation. So again, I do not want to take this lightly. For me personally, something that I was looking at um, was the community prevalence, the prevalence of COVID-19 in the community. And for me, you know, for a while where I was living in Florida, we were seeing a spike in rates. So I was very uncomfortable sending my kids to school. However, typically we look for a threshold of less than 3% indicates viral suppression in the community. And so we were starting to hit that where I live and I was getting ready to send the kids back, but now we've opened everything back up and I'm sort of right back where I started <laughs> and I'm, 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 I'm concerned. Anyway, yeah. I, I think I'll jump in there. You know, yeah. obviously every, every school is approaching this slightly differently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we, we have, minimal guidance kind of from the, the high highest, you know, um, authorities. So a lot of people are really just going into this blind and trying to do the best they can. And, and I think you, you may raise a great point, Jess, where states or counties or communities that have very low, uh, community spread, um, obviously this is going to be less risky. So it's the same sort of cumulative risk that I've been talking about, um, when it comes to schools. So states or communities that have really high rates of transmission still um, who have not dampened the community spread. The opening up of schools in addition to other sorts of, of entities is going to really just accelerate and exacerbate it. Absolutely. And I mean, we have seen other countries, I, I just briefly mentioned Australia and Ireland, there are some studies that, that came out of there um, that show that COVID-19 cases in schools, they can result in low or no transmission to other students and teachers if appropriate risk mitigation strategies, infection control strategies are in place. And that's really very important. Um, so there were some recent studies that suggested that stringent practices, so universal masking, physical distancing, hygiene, proper ventilation, and frequent testing and contact tracing can work, especially if there is low COVID-19 prevalence in the community. But as you're yeah. saying, I mean, we can't just send the kids back and then, you know, it's all about the types of mitigation strategies that we that we employ. Yeah. And I and I want to jump in and I want to say, because I know a lot of schools are implementing temperature checks. So mm. temperature checks are um, a bit of a, a, a detriment, you know, because because yes, you may catch somebody that's in a very early stage of symptomatic disease, but we'll get into this in a little bit more detail. You know, children, especially younger children, are not going to get physically ill um, as as seriously as as older individuals. And so often these temperature checks may lead to a false sense of security because um, although fever is one of the most common presentations, it's not present in every case. And especially in asymptomatic individuals, it's, it's very often not present. So, um, you know, just simply doing a temperature check is not going to be sufficient. You have to implement all of these other methods, um, including, and I think in particular, masking and contact mm-hmm. tracing. 
And also just your point about the, the uh, checking temperature, often in schools and in other places in businesses, you know, I'll have someone put the thermometer up to my forehead and sort of, I don't know what that, you know, scanning my temperature, my forehead. That's not a very accurate way to take temperature either. So just one other thing to call attention to. Um, and I don't, you know, I'm, I don't expect that they're going to put a thermometer under our tongues or in children's behinds. <laughs> all the time to check their temperatures. So one other thing to mention. So Andrew, do you want to talk a little bit about children being vectors for spread? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think, I think the, the school discussion is really important because people, um, you know, the data obviously suggests that children have lower morbidity and mortality rates than, than older adults, especially adults that have comorbidities or risk factors. Um, however, that's not a cause to be complacent about your children. Um, aside from the fact that there are cases of children dying from this disease and there are some serious consequences, um, you know, in, in some of these uh, pediatric cases, um, even aside from that, children don't live in isolation, right? They're living at home with adults. They're living at home with their parents, possibly grandparents, possibly people with those risk factors. Um, you know, they're interacting with their parents who may then go into work and interact with their colleagues that have risk factors. Um, so it, they are not living in a bubble. Um, and so even if morbidity and mortality rates are lower um, and children don't physically appear to get sick, um, they they may often be very efficient uh, transmitters of the virus. And actually, um, this evidence, there's there's growing evidence that suggests that, um, especially in younger kids who have almost no symptoms, um, you know, they're less likely to be visibly ill. They may actually act as efficient spreaders of the virus. Um, Jess, anything you want to add before I jump into a couple of case studies? Just one other thing. I mean, you're you're touching on something here. Um, basically, the one other thing I'll add is that I want to drive home that this is not a binary, you know, kids aren't really dying from this. It's, you know, a live versus die type thing. We don't understand, we don't, we still don't really fully understand the long-term effects of COVID. So um, I know that some people have seen, you know, there's been an increase in the um, inflammation syndromes, Kawasaki-like diseases in children who've had COVID. We don't, we just don't know enough about long-term effects of COVID, and even in, among children. I just wanted to jump in with that. And the final thing I'll say is that I think you touched on something super important. Kids are coming home, right? And so, as you said, they're coming home to, to their parents parents and to their grandparents. So for me, when I send my kids back to school, um, you know, until we have a, a treatment or a, or a vaccine that's been in place for, for a little while, I'm not going to be comfortable having them around my mother, who's, you know, 65 years old and has some health conditions. And so these are things to consider. You're not living in a bubble. Just wanted to drive that home. Yeah. And I think, you know, Jess, you brought up a really great point about these long-term consequences. I was actually talking with a friend of mine who who is a mom, um, you know, over the weekend. And, you know, this, this virus has only been around for, you know, less than a calendar year. We don't know if uh, a young child who is, is, you know, physically not ill is going to end up with developmental, um, you know, defects as a result of, you know, invisible damage that this virus is doing. So I think we need to keep that in mind. Uh, we don't have the data yet to say whether or not that's that's going to be a concern in the future. Mm -hmm. um, 
So there's a few recent studies. There was a study in JAMA, which is a journal of the American Medical Association. Um, they identified they were they were screening um, viral load, so amount of viral RNA in in infected persons, and they identified that children younger than five years old had ten to a hundred times more viral RNA in their respiratory tracts than both older children, so children aged five through seventeen, as well as adults. So this suggests that although young children may not present physical illness as frequently, they may actually be important drivers in community spread of the virus in the general population. And so this just underscores the the need for stringent behavioral habits in close quarters, especially in these child care and school settings um, and, and how we need to you know, continue to be concerned uh, about exacerbating that potential spread. There was another study that was a preprint um, from a research team in Italy. So again, a preprint is one that has not been peer reviewed. So we do want to kind of take it with a grain of salt. Um, but, you know, in in the body of data that we have right now, it, it actually aligns um, pretty closely with what we've been seeing. Um, so this was a study that did community tracing, uh, contact tracing of 2,800 infected individuals. Those individuals had about 7,000 contacts amongst the community. And there was a an attack rate, which is the number of persons that are infected um, in, in the uh, potential interaction. So that's your attack rate. Um, that was about 13.3%. Um, what we saw or what they saw was symptomatic illness was greatest in older persons, as you would expect. But the risk of transmission was greatest in younger individuals. So in Infected persons younger than 15 years of age, the attack rate was 22.4% as compared to the general body of infected persons, which had an overall attack rate of 13.3. So what that suggests is that younger persons may actually be more efficient at spreading the virus. And that could be a combination of higher viral load, but it also be because they're, they're more frequently asymptomatic. So they don't necessarily know they're infected. And again, they're walking around in the community. Community, uh, transmitting the virus to pe- people. Mm-hmm. And I also just think about kids, you know, I'm my own toddlers sticking their hands in their mouths. I mean, my goodness. Absolutely. Sorry to interrupt. There's obviously there's, there's been a few studies about some of these childcare centers. So the, um, the morbidity mortality weekly report from the CDC on September 18th looked at three different childcare center outbreaks. And what they found was over 50% of the index cases. So that's the initial person that was infected that ultimately spread the virus to other people uh, were pediatric. So they were attendees of the child care center, so persons younger than 18. Um, the attack rate amongst those three different outbreaks, so again, the, the proportion spread um, of the virus was reduced in the facility that mandated mask wearing for all individuals older than two years old. So not only are we seeing that children are effective spreaders, but when you implement the safety precautions, they actually pretty significantly reduce the, the spread of the virus. Um, that's promising. I mean, that yeah. that's really good news. Yeah, absolutely. It's very encouraging. Um, so I think, you know, as we move towards these reopenings, you know, if, if, you know, and, and honestly, you know, children are, are likely to be very compliant. You know, my mom is a middle school teacher and, and they've gone back in Connecticut to a hybrid model where they're in school, uh, in half in half population classes, you know, half the week on half the week off. And, um, you know, she said the, the students were actually very, very, um, compliant with wearing their masks throughout the day. Um, 
Just a couple more case studies. So there was a new study published in Science. Um, This was conducted by Princeton, Johns Hopkins, and a couple of other collaborators. They looked at transmission dynamics of of over half a million people that were infected in India. And what they found, um, which is interesting and consistent with other studies, is that these super spreaders are responsible for the majority of this forward transmission. So that's community spread. And what that means is that, uh, you know, a few finite people are responsible for the majority of the transmission. So in this case, this was 8% of infected individuals accounted for 60% of transmission. Holy mm-hmm. So, so what this, what this suggests is of course, we don't know who a super spreader is until it happens. So again, we just have to be very cautious. Um, more importantly, the study also found that children and young adults were a third of the cases and they were in fact, very inf- efficient at transmitting the virus. So I think this underscores the fact that while visibly or physically, this demographic doesn't generally get severely ill. They are able to infect others quite effectively, especially if they're interacting with persons that are in higher risk groups. Mm-hmm. So wh- let, let's just talk about some of the takeaways here. Um, so while generally mortality and morbidity rates seem to be lower <laughs> in children, um, that's certainly not cause to be complacent. We're talking about some case studies here looking at attack rates um, and looking at the fact that kids can still spread to um, to other people, again, bringing it home to their to their parents, to their grandparents. So it doesn't mean that children are just totally protected from COVID, right? I think that there's there's been a real misconception about about kids being safe from this. Yeah, and trust me, I want that to be the case with, with right. my own children. Right. Yeah. I mean, it would be great if that were in fact the case. Um, you know, obviously this is very different than influenza where children are actually a very high risk group. Um, but of course, in this instance, now, now they're the potential mode of transmission here. Right. Um, and I know we haven't talked too much about kind of upper level schools, high schools and colleges. But of course, the same considerations for um, older teenagers and college students are going to be true as with adults, um, particularly in college campuses where physical distancing is going to be less often practiced. Um, Obviously, people, you know, college students are more often, um, you know, not sleeping as much, not having as healthy an immune system. So we've already seen several college campuses that that did reopen um, that are now shut down because of an outbreak that was not um, stopped early enough. And then you have kind of, um, um, you know, consistent community spread. So again, we want to, we want to underscore that there's a, there's a picture of Jess and I, and I think I'm going to share it. <laughs> no, um, we no. were at, we were at home. I'm going to describe it. it. We're, we were at homecoming and, and I was licking Jess's face. Thank you. So two future scientists oh, in the making, well on our career paths, <laughs> um, not adhering to physical distancing. I was going to say, Andrew, thinking, spreading our germs. <laughs> thinking back to some of the parties that we threw and attended during oh. our college career, um, I'd say we were super spreaders. <laughs> Those were super spreader events. Very, um, very likely. <laughs> so, whew, oh boy, on that note, and I'm blushing right now, so it's a good thing that people can't see us. Um, let's talk about travel, if that's okay, if you're okay, um, yeah, absolutely. moving on to the next topic. So this is something we get tons of questions about, you know, I have to travel. Should I fly? Should I take a road trip? You know, um, if I fly, it'll be a three hour flight versus, versus if I drive, it's going to be, you know, a 16 hour drive or something like that. Um, 
you have to weigh the, the pros and the cons because, and we're, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the evidence on, you know, risk of flying. But if you are taking a road trip, sure, it's safer. You're in your car, right? You're able to control. It's a more controlled environment than if you're on a plane with strangers and in the air. Um, but if it's a long road trip and you have to stop frequently, you're going to rest stops to eat or use the restroom, then your risk is going to increase, right? So you have to weigh the, the, the pros and the cons. Let's talk a little bit about air travel. Um, I recently had to book a flight for my mother-in-law, actually, and I was looking at, uh, quite detail at the different protocols being implemented by different airlines, and they do vary pretty significantly. And I will say that I ultimately booked her a flight on, on JetBlue, shout out to JetBlue, um, because they are, um, they're not booking any of the, the middle seats, and they have a very strict mask policy throughout the entire duration of the flight, um, and that's not the case on all the airlines. So of, you know, of the airlines, I was, I was comfortable with their protocols. So according to experts, the risk of catching COVID on on a plane is relatively low. If the airline is following procedures, again, talking, we're talking about things like infas- uh, enforcing mass compliance, spacing out available seats, and screening for sick passengers. Um, also, airlines uh, frequently note that commercial planes are equipped with HEPA filters. Um, so these are CDC recommended air filters that are used in hospital isolation rooms. Um, HEPA filters capture 99.97% of airborne particles and substantially reduce the risk of viral spread. Um, in addition, the uh, the air in plane cabins is changed over 10 to 12 times per hour, which also raises the air quality above that of a normal building. So now, oops, yeah, sorry, something I want to mention is, you know, that the ability to filter the recycled air, um, you know, negates some of the risk associated with the higher people density on a plane. Mm -hmm. Um, So ultimately, you know, my ballpark would be flying on a plane is going to be akin to participating in an extended duration indoor activity. So essentially the length of time you'd be on the plane, the length of time you'd be, you know, in a building with other persons. So you have more people per square foot on a plane, um, but you do have HEPA filtration, which most buildings other than hospitals and many biological research labs do not have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's important to note that the the high-powered filtration systems that we're talking about, they're great, but they're not sufficient on their own to prevent outbreaks, right? So if, you know, if you're crammed onto a plane, a long flight, you know, and you're right next to each other, that, that risk is just going to jump. So, um, you know, if you're if you're sitting near an infected person and they're sneezing, they're coughing, they're breathing heavily, those viral particles are going into the air um, at a faster rate than the airplanes can flush them out of the out of the cabin. Um, so this is why it's so important um, to to keep your masks on. Um, absolutely, absolutely necessary. So, uh, Andrew, did you want to add anything, or should we jump into some case studies? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Let's go ahead and, and review a couple of case studies and then we can circle back and talk about, um, you know, other types of transportation really quickly. Okay. So there were two in- international flights. Um, they were studied in the earlier stages of the pandemic um, where infection rates vary depending on mask use. So on the first flight, 
passengers were not wearing masks and there masks, excuse me. And there was a single person who was infected with COVID and they infected 14 people. This was on a plane traveling from uh, London to Vietnam. On the second flight that was going from Singapore uh, to Hangzhou in China, all of the passengers were wearing masks. And so although 15 passengers um, either had suspected or confirmed cases of COVID-19, the only man infected on the flight had loosened his mask mid-flight and had been sitting very close to to four people who later tested positive. So again, these case studies are just showing you um, the real impact of of really wearing masks and wearing them properly for the duration of a flight. Yeah, and I want to I want to add on to the the London to Hanoi Vietnam flight. Those those persons that were infected were um, in the vast majority of those. It was it was proximity to the infected individual, and so um, they were all these these persons were all in business class, which also happened to be where the symptomatic individual was. Um, And this happened to be an attack rate of 62%. So it's a very high attack rate because they were on a flight together in close proximity with no masks for 10 hours straight. So it's persons, proximity, uh, and duration. Those are the three parameters that I keep, um, you know, harping on. And so you can see that when you aren't mitigating any of those, that attack rate is is extremely high, much more higher than what we've seen in these other community outbreaks, such as, you know, we have ranges between, you know, 10% to 30% attack rate. Um, mm-hmm. So again, you know, really underscoring the requirement for all of these safety precautions in order to really do anything indoors safely. I think, you know, I view an airplane essentially just as an indoor compartment, just like any other place. Absolutely. I personally, I don't know about you, but I I don't feel comfortable flying. Um, If I absolutely had to fly, I would definitely pick an airline like JetBlue, you know, that has these stringent policies in place. I wouldn't dare touch my mask for the duration of the flight. Um, You know, again, I would only book a flight that had the the middle row, uh, excuse me, the the middle seats empty. Um, I would try not to drink a lot of water (laughs) before the flight so that I would minimize the amount of times that I have to travel, um, you know, through the aisle, go to the bathroom. Um, If I had to use the bathroom, I would probably try to do so at the airport versus on the actual plane because those are being cleaned much more frequently. Um, Trying to think if I had any other tips, but basically, you know, as you're saying, you know, the risk is there just like any other indoor indoor space. You're going to be in close proximity to other people. So keep your guard up, use those risk mitigation um, strategies um, and avoid travel if you can, but we understand that sometimes that's not always possible. Yeah. Um, And I think that really brings us to kind of other modes of transportation. So, you know, of course, other modes of public transit, so subway, bus, et cetera, are always going to carry higher risk than, you know, private transport in your own personal vehicle. Um, Again, a lot of the same considerations, you know, um, space yourself out. If windows are able to be opened, um, you know, more ventilation is better. Um, You know, obviously where wearing your mask and things like that. Um, you know, when you're comparing road trip to flying, you know, I generally will lean towards a road trip. I'll, I'd rather be in my own car by myself. Um, the risk of running into a gas station or a, a rest stop um, and interacting with just a few people for just a few minutes is substantially lower than or sitting just on, a squad on the side of the road. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think we talked about that early on we did. Um, in a ditch. Um, but ultimately, you know, those, even if your drive time is longer, the 
the number of interactions and the duration of those interactions are going to be much, much lower, substantially lower than on a flight with 100 persons or more. Um, and so generally speaking, yes, you may have to interact with people at a gas station or a rest stop or a restaurant to get takeout or whatever, but those risks are going to be lower um, than if you compare kind of a similar flight. Um, I, do know, I do know some people are not, um, you know, as in love with driving cross country as others. Um, you know, we generally drive quite a bit. We've dr- driven round trip to Florida and back a few times over the last couple of years. Wow. Um, I may be seeing you soon, Jess. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, ultimately, again, you know, you have to balance your personal risk level that you're willing to to um, live with versus, you know, the public safety measures being employed. Right. And, you know, if you do have to take public transportation, you know, sort of what we were talking about in the last episode, you know, probably a good idea to maybe change your clothes, you know, once you arrive at your destination, if you want to, um, you know, certainly wash your hands, you can wash your face, you could take a shower if you want to, probably wouldn't run into the arms of um, of family members, you know, especially older family members. Um, I would recommend quarantining if possible. And again, you know, we were talking about testing, Andrea, Um, you know, if I had to have someone fly to, 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 you know, to travel to see me, I would ask that they, again, if possible, you know, quarantine, get tested, let's say day five after they've landed, Um, you know, get that PCR test, see if they, if they test positive for active infection, um, just to, 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 to put my mind at ease. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit, I know we're nearing the end of this episode here, about the infectious period. You know, when does that end? When can someone come out of isolation? I think, I don't know if it was the last episode or earlier in this episode, I can't remember, um, we were saying that if a person does test positive, I mean, typically the 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 infection lasts about 14 days. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, the, the current data is suggesting that you're contagious or infectious for probably 10 to 14 days. So 14 days is kind of the upper limit of safety. And beyond that, while you may residually test positive for a diagnostic test, um, it's very likely due to just some residual pieces of virus that haven't been cleared from your body because, you know, you, mucus secretions are recycling and that takes a little bit of time. So um, just because you test positive, um, you know, with the PCR, the antigen test, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's still live virus in your body, say, 20 days afterwards. So right now, the data is suggesting that you're no longer contagious probably 10 to 14 days afterwards. Um, and that's kind of where that quarantine guideline is where it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think this is so important because now we're hearing more and more about long haulers, right? Yes. So people who are they're experiencing some symptoms months after they initially test positive. So what you were just saying is that there may be some residual virus that they might test positive, but that does not necessarily mean that they're contagious, you know, months after that initial infection. Right. And, and with the long haulers, you know, they're dealing with what we call sequelae, which are long-term consequences of having an illness that does bodily damage, tissue damage. So they're dealing with things like cardiac issues, um, lethargy, et cetera, that are physical illness, meaning you're not feeling well, but it's not an active infection. Um, and that's true for, for a variety of, of diseases. So these are kind of long-term consequences of having recovered, um, but they should not be viewed as contagious beyond that period. 
Very, very important point. Um, Andrea, I feel like we we covered a lot. Is there anything else that you want to include um, before you yeah, the very on? The very last thing I think I really want to reiterate is, you know, every exposure has the possibility to expose other people by orders of magnitude. And so you want to be sure to kind of keep your corn bubble, your quarantine bubble small. Um, and again, as I reiterated, one risky activity ne- means you need to then be more stringent with other activities. It's not an all or nothing. Oh, I opened the door. Let's just let the floodgates open and you know, whatever you have to balance it. So if you need to take a risk for something like for, for myself, as an example, I had to have surgery, um, uh, at the end of July and I actually had to stay overnight in the ICU. And I was, I was more uh, upset about the fact that I had to stay overnight in the hospital and potentially be exposed, um, you know, to, to other people that might, you know, have been infected. Um, and so, you know, after I got home from my surgery the next day, I was pretty much self quarantined for 14 Mm -hmm. days. Um, so again, you want to balance the, the risk of one activity, then be more stringent with other activities. That is such an important point. Thank you for driving that message home. Um, all right. Andrea, you want to take us home for for this episode? Thanks for joining us today. We hope you learn a thing or two. In our next episode, we are going to discuss influenza, how it differs from COVID-19, tips to beat the upcoming flu season, and some more tidbits about the flu shot. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science.